Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast i've got an awesome episode for you today i've got some guests who have been on before and if you know this podcast you already know them if you've been living under a rock let me just tell you finn mckenty is Director of Operations at URM, longtime co-collaborator of mine. And you might know him from his YouTube channel and podcast, The Punk Rock MBA. He's a brilliant dude. I've also got Jesse Cannon, who has been on this podcast a number of times. And he's a producer, mastering engineer, and author. And he produces The New Abnormal, a top 50 podcast on the all podcast charts on Apple Podcasts. He also hosts the YouTube channel MuseFormation where he teaches musicians to go from zero to 10,000 fans. And finally, last but not least, I've got my friend Johnny Minardi on, who is the vice president of A&R at Electra Music Group. And that counts Fueled by Ramen, Roadrunner, some others. He also runs Self-Titled Management, which manages the careers of some incredible producers and mixers such as Will Putney, Nolly, Steve Evitz. This is a great episode. I'll stop talking. I introduce you Finn McKenty, Jesse Cannon, and Johnny Minardi. Finn McKenty, Jesse Cannon, and Johnny Minardi, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Stoked to be here. Always happy to be here. So we're what, like six months into uh, the end yes. of the world, basically? <laughs> <laughs> Six point six six point five, I'd say. 6.5. All right. So the reason I want to do this is because we're all friends in real life, and I think we've all uh, either podcasted or done something like that at this point with each other individually. Uh, I, would, I would describe us as acquaintances. Yeah, fair enough. feels a little... I was being committed, but... Yeah, I was being polite, man. I will say I have you are three of my favorite podcasters. I've been multiple podcasts with two of oh, you, you, and one of you doesn't have my email address to get me on his. I think at this point, so at some point, <laughs> maybe if this goes well, maybe we could, you know, use some momentum into that. There we go. I'll put in a word for you <laughs> if if it helps. We'll see. He's a helps, tough cookie. I'll put in a word for you. Yeah, yeah. She's got high standards. What can I say? So. What's the dumbest shit you guys have heard so far from people in the music industry about uh, getting through this? In my, for me, because uh, I'm paranoid, 
the dumbest shit was it's going to be over in three yeah. months. That's what I said. I know, but I, I, forgive, <laughs> I forgive you because we're friends. <laughs> yeah, I think rescheduling the, the tours for the first time was insane to me when they moved him like two months. And you're like, oh, you might want to add a year to that thing. Um, I guess no one knew, but right, obviously the first couple of weeks. But yeah, rescheduling the same tour four times at this point is just exhausting. When you see a band scheduling something for like, say, February, don't you want to tell them <laughs> to stop? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 as much as I want to tell them to stop when they t say that they're not going to release music till this is done. That was the dumbest, actually. That's a better point. Yeah. That'll help. That was the dumbest thing I'd heard, that yeah. people were holding their records for a while. For, for not only a while, but yeah, until it's done. And then it was like, then they eventually just fell behind because it just felt like now you can't, it's impossible to do that. You can't survive. Did you actually see it uh, mess up people's momentum? Um, I don't know if there's a particular case. I think I saw wide open lanes at radio because we weren't stopping, but everyone else was. Every A-list artist was holding their singles thinking it was over in two months. And we just kept running them through. And we were like, oh, look at us run up the chart while everyone else is tiptoeing around. Huh. So that felt good. Is that something where at meetings you guys were consciously, consciously looking at it and saying, hmm, we're going to take advantage of the fact that nobody's moving right now or is it just that you guys never stopped and they stopped and then you just noticed it a little of both i think you felt it pretty quickly that people were holding or delaying or this was supposed to come out in april and they stopped it from coming out so then you're kind of realizing oh well they're stopping but let's not do that and a kind of you know happy accident there and how has that how has that evolved now that we're six months deep have other people that were previously i guess just waiting around have they caught up or have they at least tried to catch up yeah i would say they've tried to catch up and they probably have for you know the most part the internet forgets stuff in a week so it moves pretty quickly so <laughs> if they could decide today they could have a hit song next week so except for the stuff that they remember for 10 years <laughs> the negatives yeah <laughs> one or the other definitely one or the Fair. other yeah, I can't wait for that. There was a really good meme that I saw uh, from this account that I love called uh, at Jewel Sexual. And uh, it was like the Galaxy Braid meme. It was like uh, saving your song uh, for a month into the pandemic, saving your song for three months, and then releasing it when when it's over, like every other group's going to do and getting buried under right. the weight of it. And it's like, mm -hmm, you know. That is going to be a thing is that the second that we're all like, yes, we can tour, we're going to see an astonishing amount of fucking fools rush in. Yeah. I wonder if that's a good thing. How is it a good no. thing? I'm curious. Well, okay. So I think for some people it's going to be a great thing. But what I'm just wondering is maybe it's going to be an overload. But at the same time, don't you think that the public might have uh, a bit of, I guess, more of an appetite for it at that point? I definitely agree, but there's only so many. They'll be over it within a week. Well, I think there's also just only so many bands you can fit into a club in a day. Like, you know, one of the biggest things is like, I keep having people say to me like, oh, we're going to tour once this is done. I'm like, mm, technically all the venues are going to be booked mm -hmm. with huge bands for a while. Or not there. They're not going to book you because you're not the first choice of who everybody's been missing. That's a great point. There's going to be a long line and you're not in front of mm -hmm. it. Yeah, mm -hmm. a long line. And uh, I do think there's going to be far less 
options for people to gig at. So yep. that's true. You put those two things together and uh, it's going to be probably a very small group of people that are going to be getting to actually play shows. I'd like to hear what you guys think about this since all of you guys uh, are more qualified to talk about it than I am since you have more experience with managing artists that make a lot of income off their tours or Ale, in your case, actually touring and stuff. To me, it seems odd that people are so fixated on touring. And and again, I, I may be wrong here, so I'd like to hear what you think. But I mean, I know so many of these rappers and stuff that make a perfectly good living without leaving their room. So it seems strange to me that especially in the case of smaller artists that they're so fixated on touring and I just don't understand why I don't really see how this changes anything because when they were touring nobody was really going to their shows anyway so <laughs> I mean I don't mean to be rude but it's like <laughs> if you're playing to like 75 people and that's optimistic for a lot of smaller bands or even a couple hundred people like I just don't really see how this dramatically changes the situation and a lot of these bands didn't make money on their tours anyway so I, I just don't really understand how this changes anything if anything it's like all right well now you can just stay home and focus on getting attention on the internet so I, I guess i just don't really see why this is a huge deal i mean i understand if you're fucking wiz khalifa or whatever and you're giving up a multi-million dollar payday to play some huge festival that sucks but if you're a smaller band it just doesn't really seem like it's as big of a deal as a lot of them are making it out to be or is there something i'm missing no i actually agree with you yeah i don't think you're wrong go ahead jesse I think you are wrong, and I'll explain why. So I manage, technically, I manage four legacy bands, two of which were planning on touring during this. And what we have to remember is that the consumption levels with those rappers you're using as an example, a low-level rapper is bigger than a big punk band. Yes. So they get so much more. So, like, two of my acts... Uh, have on Spotify over 100,000 monthly listeners, which most people would be fucking thrilled to have. And it does generate good income. Obviously, I divvy up the income. We have our own record label. I see all the numbers. We get 85% of the profits. But with that said, because they're legacy acts and they've both been around for 20 to 25 years, their touring revenue is gargantuan. $30,000 for Riot Fest type stuff. And like... Yeah, yeah, I I understand in those cases, like it, that that makes sense to me. But I'm saying for like a band that was breaking even or maybe clearing a couple grand on a national tour anyway, which is most of them. Yeah, as compared to any number of like 22 year old rappers I know that have a couple hundred thousand monthly Spotify listeners that are have been making a living off of streaming for years. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is is that rock bands, it's so hard for them to get to a good place without a label still. That really is, I've been really into that William Gibson quote, the future's already here, it's just not evenly dispersed. Mm -hmm. And that quote I think is very representative in that there is so many genres of music where you're seeing people who, you know, literally just got high and accidentally hit upload on SoundCloud and then have a million <laughs> views. And like, oh right. shit, they wake up in the morning. Like that is mm -hmm. a real thing that happens. Like, oh, dope. I'm rich. <laughs> but that is not a thing that happens in rock. It's never happened once probably actually in rock. Yeah. I mean, that, that actually, that's the better way of putting it. And so the point being like the amount of work and then the profit split of the four to five ways in rock sometimes even worse. Uh, thankfully, no ska bands are getting popular now. 
<laughs> that's one of the good things There's about this. There's a lot this. of good reasons for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a different Let's podcast, be thankful for I something. Think, yeah. so. Silver lining. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being, that makes it so unfeasible for rock bands. It's kind of unbelievable. And you know, like... Yeah, but was it feasible for, with the exception of like the ones that you're talking about who you would manage or the ones on Johnny's label? So with the exception of those types of bands, like the hundred thousand other rock bands or metal bands and punk bands who don't make jack shit off of anything really like what does this change you're talking but you're talking about like a tiny less than one percent of rock bands right now well less than one percent of rock bands make a living off their music sure. yeah. that is correct but if we're going to focus on the ones that had a, let's call them on the thirty thousand. Like, I remember when I started in the 90s, we'd say it was 30,000 records you made a living on. Now, 30,000 monthly listeners does not, you're still holding a day job when you're off tour. Right. Now, I don't think that those two things are exactly alike in number, but if, like, let's say that applicable size, I will say that I think that there's a very overly represented complain class, complaining class. <laughs> That is really distorting the reality most people have about streaming. But with that said, if depending where we're taking the temperature, is it better than 10 years ago? I'd say it's negligible, but 1999, unbelievably more compensated for less fans. You, I mean, you could be literally selling 10,000 to 15,000 records and not having to do a day job back uh, 1999. I have a question for you guys also. I've thought about this quite a bit. I believe that the problem is drummers. Wow. <laughs> because, Let's no, hear it. No, really. Full, full hear stop, it. full stop. <laughs> yes, and, and, and acoustic drums, I think, are the problem because that's the only thing stopping rock artists from putting shit out at the pace that people in other genres do. Like, you know, uh, Johnny Frank from Bill Murray, he puts out like two fucking albums a year mm. and it's because he records everything himself and programs all the drums and... Anybody could do that, but, you know, recording drums really is kind of a, a, a capital-intensive thing and time-intensive thing that makes it difficult to put music out at that volume and also requires you to have a drummer and all that stuff. So to me, like, the Johnny Frank model is the future of a rock band or any of these bedroom gent bands, same thing, right. like, program all their shit. You know, maybe it's two people, a vocalist, and then someone who does everything else, whatever, but... You know, I think the uh, acoustic drums are, you know, kind of the structural blocker there. And it's interesting to me that there's this stigma against programming drums. And it just seems to be another case of rock yeah. bands getting in their own way if they would just understand, look, if you want to record acoustic drums, by all means, go for it. But understand that that's going to hold you back from a lot of opportunities. And it's kind of a structural issue you're creating for yourself. It's been proven a few times, actually, uh, in the metal world that... Uh you can get away with it and not lose credibility. Meshuggah right. did it. Um, they put mm -hmm. out an album with programmed drums. Fear Factory yes. did it. However, and I think maybe it's more of a metal problem than a rock problem, but still, I think uh, nobody wants to think that they're listening to something fake. So if they can figure out a way to figure out the challenge. <laughs> Doesn't matter, yeah. But why do they care? Why do they care? I don't know why they care. That's a deeper, more uh, pointless conversation. I mean, and what percentage of people, the only the only difference is the fucking symbols anyway because everything yeah. else is so edited in the same place that they're fake anyway. It's like the symbols are the only difference. Well, I'm just saying if you can figure out a way to do it where you don't lose credibility, you can overcome yeah. that problem because it's been proven 
even in the dorkiest of genres that you can get away with it if you can prove your credibility. But Finn, to your point, if any band isn't successful or putting out music faster because of the drums, you're fucked anyways. Like if you can't figure out, if yep. you can't <laughs> <No>. figure out <laughs> True. how to get an album's worth of drums by next Friday, outsourcing, doing it yourself and sending out or literally just hitting someone up and being like, can you do this for me and send them back? Then your band is fucked anyways. Pay a noob sastry and he'll bang them out. Crazy. Or just get them fucking the, you know, like you said, programmed and deal with it. Like right now there's no rules more than ever, ever. And credibility aside, we can get into that. If you're worried about credibility, you're fucked anyways as well. Well, yeah, metal is fucked basically. That's crazy. I, I, I will, and I don't know how this happened because I'm usually not the contrarian, but uh, I'm going to ask you. No, you're never no, the contrarian. No. <laughs> um, okay. Let me explain why you're wrong. A book by Jesse Campbell. <laughs> so I remember I was talking to Rich Costi a while back, and he had just done this record for a band called Swimmers, which is on Atlanta Electra. And he was talking about, so the, their record is Drum Machines Mixed and I say vintage 80s drum machines mixed with real drums. And he talks about a thing that uh, you two talk, you two being fit at AL talk about is doing the things your competition isn't willing to do. I think one of the most interesting things about the real drums thing, and it's the same thing with whether it's SoundCloud rap or everything, is that like, so SoundCloud rap, the extra effort that gets rewarded is actually like getting your vocals nudged to be on the beat. Like, and I should say on the beat is not always on the beat. It's on that weird pocket that they're going for, but actually taking the time to get a consistent flow that has some nuance to it. I think a lot of the time, the real drums is the secret sauce that makes it sound more exceptional. And I think we're, we reward people who do exceptional things. And I do think, unfortunately, that real drums and the effort and even the thought, like the other thing we have to remember is, the biggest problem with this constant content rush is, is that most people don't have what I like to call an artistic attention span that can make something good fast. It takes, you know, years for people, for a lot of people to come up with enough good ideas to fill a record. Sure. I mean, use, again, using Johnny Frank as an example, he's a exceptionally talented person mm -hmm. who's been making music full-time for 12 years, so he's not your average Joe off the street. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I hear you, Finn. I just think that if you start telling every single artist that they just can't do that sort of thing or whatever, do you think it would be better for artists to just basically dumb their music down? I'm not saying that Johnny Frank does, but that would be dumbing it down for quite a few people. Do you think it, that would be better? What would be dumbing it down? Dumb down their product just to put it out faster or something? So I think that there is an assumption there that I'm not sure is true, which is that if they spent more time on it, it would be better. I don't know that that's true. It's not true. It's not true that spending more time on something will make it better, but it is true that in some cases, skipping a step is cutting a corner. My thing would be more often than not, an artist should have spent more time on it, but it doesn't mean that it is going to make it better. I think in any kind of um, creative or business pursuit to me is about understanding where your effort should be applied because you can't put 100% effort into everything and every product. And you just have to understand what is going to make the greatest marginal contribution. And 
you know, maybe in a perfect world, we would all have, you know, perfectly engineered drums with a great drummer in a great room on every song, but we all know that that's just not reality. So, you know, the question to me is like, if your goal is to like build your fan base and, you know, make some money or whatever, like, how are you going to get there? And I would say that for most people, um, making great content and having good vocal hooks is probably the thing that's going to move the needle for them. And that's not true. And Every genre, I suppose, if you play technical death metal or something like that, but you know, you're never going to make any money there anyway. So, <laughs> I, I think there's a, I think there's a lot of ways that people can convince themselves that, well, this won't work for me because X or Y. But I would say, like, have you even tried? Like for me, for example, with my my YouTube videos. For anybody listening who's not familiar with me, I have a YouTube channel that is reasonably popular, and uh, I I tried something a couple months ago because I heard a bunch of people anecdotally say that they listened to my, like, oh, I, mm-hmm. I listened to your new video. It's great. And I was like, wait a minute, why am I putting so much effort into the edit when there's probably a lot of people that just listen to it? And so the next video, I put like 30% less effort into the edit. I completely half-assed it. And it made absolutely no difference. It was actually one of my more popular videos. And, and that was like a breakthrough for me. It's like, there is no reason for me to put more effort into that edit. And it, and that's not that I'm lazy or I don't care. It's just like bounded rationality. I've, I just, there's no point in me spending my limited free time on something that doesn't make a difference. And I would say that, you know, musicians should consider the same thing. Like, for example, I've noticed a lot of rappers now are programming drums that sound like acoustic drums. And I can tell that they're programmed because, you know, because it's me and I can, I can tell that that crash symbol is programmed. But to you know, ninety nine point nine nine percent of their audience, that's a drum set. So to me, that's that's a way of you know achieving what you're saying, Jesse, of like of of adding that extra something special of having acoustic drums on the song, quote unquote, without actually having to go through the time and cost and hassle of recording a drum set. So so to me, it's like checking assumptions. I guess if the assumption is I have to record an actual drum set to have acoustic drums on my song, I'm not sure that that's true. I think the assumption is that recording drums has to take a long time. Yeah, that too. Yeah, I, I think that that's not true anymore. I think that's, that's, that's my point. Back when yeah. I was recording. Yeah, it took forever. Yeah. So I come from a world where recording drums took forever. But since I have stopped and a lot of people like Anoop, who you brought up, have become people who people just hire to record their drums for them and send them back. There's a bunch of little studios like that all over the world now with run by amazing drummers where they have these perma setups that already sound great. They're already tuned. They're already they're dialed and they just, they learn the shit on the spot. It's a lot like session players used to be, you know, in the seventies and eighties, but I guess the modern form of it, there's a lot of these, like, especially right now, you send a noob or Alex Rudinger, whatever the fuck you want. And they'll record it exactly the way you programmed it and send it back to you. And it's going to be great. And it's going to be better than program. So, but I yes. think, so then the assumption is more, what is it that wastes a bunch of time and, and it's, re- and, assumption is that recording drums wastes a bunch of time, but I don't think it has to at all. Jesse, how many days do you spend on an album on drums if you're doing 10 songs? Like back in the day or now? Now. We should say my setup is that since I have a engineer, he edits while mm-hmm. I produce the drums. And it, what I usually say is five five songs right. per day is usually what Jeez. I can do is right. 10 to 12 so hours. So two day. to three days on an album. <laughs> yeah, so and that's with me doing a lot of reconsidering writing and things like that. If like 
You know, I did a record recently where the drummer, I didn't change one part and we did all 12 songs in seven hours because he was amazing. Which is rare, but I would say two to three days on an album. Yeah, usual case is five. That's faster than programming. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a lot faster than programming. But but we're missing something when we say that's faster than programming is because that person usually wrote most of it beforehand. And that if we put that into the case, oh, I don't even want to think how long these bands are inefficient writing absolute boring bullshit, but that's a different story. I'd be curious, Johnny, is there anything you tell people, artists, not to focus a lot of time on versus focus a lot of time on when you're doing development? That's a good question. I mean... It's obviously case by case. To me, I it drives me absolutely bonkers when we get into mix notes and mastering notes, which I didn't know mastering notes was a thing, to be honest, because oh, yes. fucking insane <laughs> oh, yeah. doesn't make any difference to 99.99% of any human being with ears. Man, can I tr- let me interrupt you for one second oh, real not. quick. Triggering Just, I need to interrupt you for one second, Johnny. There is an A&R guy who we all love, but at your label... <laughs> I won't say who, but I know that he got one record by a pretty prominent metal band remastered seven times at like five grand a pop. (laughs) Not because the band wasn't happy or because Ted Jensen did a bad job the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time or the fifth time or the sixth time. Sounds expensive. It was expensive. And he just, he just had mastering notes. That's fucking bonkers. I've heard of that stuff going that was 2005. My point is now versus then, there should be no qualm with that. Again, to Finn's point of moving quickly on things that matter. So kind of to your point, Jesse, I, I feel like those bands are, I think, afraid. And that's what I think you were kind of saying is they're afraid to like let things go into the world because then they have to be judged on them. So there's always this moment of, I want to protect. And if I always protect and tweak until it's dead, there will always be a different excuse because the timing didn't work out or whatever. I almost feel like there's a lot of self-sabotage. So for me, for me, outside of technical musical ears, which I don't even think I have in great ears on any sort of technical studio thing ever. What I like to do is make sure the band psychology, it makes more sense and that they're confident in, in letting go and like saying, this is great. And I'm like, I don't need an 11th or 12th version of this song. The feeling I got from your demo, that's all I need when you go and you know fix this or re-record this because it was on a voice note or whatever. If you can match the feeling, I don't care what the final product sounds like in a lot of cases. And 99% of stuff doesn't go to radio, which is when you really only have to play their game of it's got to be... Well, if it's in between these two bands, it's got to like kind of play the game of Neil Avron mixes and Ted Jensen masters. If you're going to alternative radio, you know what I mean? Like there's definitely some rules, but yeah, to me, Jesse, it's just kind of like, don't spend time worrying yourself to death. And you could pivot so fast in this world that you could put out a song that is fucking terrible and no one would remember it seven days from now, like literally. And, and it happens with people. I had a conversation when fucking fall up boy put out the ghostbusters song that you none of you have probably even heard but it came uh, i don't, I don't even remember know what exactly. you're talking about <laughs> on the re-release of ghostbusters two years ago they did because it was their childhood favorite movie no one remembers that movie either exactly so they did the themes the updated theme song and it wasn't great you know it just wasn't and i think maybe they knew that going in and they tried it 
a week later, no one even knew about it. And that's all right. You just did it for their own self-satisfaction mm. and then they're through it. And now a bunch of people are going to go listen to it, but you know, whatever. So <laughs> sorry to reopen a wound. But yeah, that's my point is like, just let go. Just like do shit. You make a good point. Like the downside of quote unquote failure is almost nothing unless you're like, I mean, if, if fallout boy can like swing and a miss and survive it, you're, you're going to be gonna fine. Be just fine with no one paying attention. It's a lot easier. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. How do you, how do you talk an artist off that ledge though? Because it's kind of a neurotic sort it of is. thing when that self-sabotage of got to make this thing better. Oh, there's this excuse. Oh, it's just, if we just fix this snare, oh, just, it's just the mastering is a little too hot in this one part. It's just clipping just a little too much. Oh, man, just the low end is just not right right here. Or, God, we've got to rethink that chorus. Whatever it is, whatever it is, it's, you're right. It's typically a neurotic, well, I'm right. It's typically a neurotic thing. How do you talk them off that ledge? Because it's not a rational it's not a rational place they're coming from generally. Plus, they don't have the perspective to know that their shit's fine. Right. It's based in your relationship with them. They clearly, if for me, talking specifically from an A&R, I've convinced everyone that I work with to sign a major label contract, right? So right then and there, there's some level of trust, of experience, and betterment of whatever it is, right? Whether it's we share this or I'm protecting them from the big, bad, scary world, whatever that is, we have a trust. So. Yeah, it takes a long time for certain artists. Some artists are like, you could say some of the things I just said to you, and it's a pretty sobering feeling where they're like, fuck, you're right. And they let go. And it actually, whether I'm right or wrong, to your point, Finn, failure is the, just the next step to get to the next thing. Because if it was going to fail, us tweaking the mix wasn't going to make it succeed in my head. I don't think you can ever say a song took a shot and it had a poor mix, and that's why it didn't become multi-platinum. I don't, I mean, if you can name one, I would love, but you know what I mean? Like it just, it just feels like the minutia of things. And when I get stuck with a band, I have a lot of these bands that want to move faster. And if you want to sit and stew in it, let me know when you're done doing that. Right. And then they'll start to feel like they're getting laughed. <laughs> You'll laughed. actually say that. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. They are. Cause they are. It's awesome. Well, I love that. First off, no one has time for the bullshit. So I give, so much respect when someone, if I call someone and say, Hey, I need so-and-so to work on this album. I'm put, I'm getting ready to start putting together. And they say, they're not interested. I'm like, cool. Thank you. Like the bluntness of that I'm gone. I'm already on. But when it's like, Oh, checking schedules. Cause they're just too much of a pussy to say, no, you just kind of like, we'll check, we'll look, well, maybe then, eh, you know, it's like, whatever. So to me, when I can be like forward with my artists, I think it's out of respect for their time, my time, everyone involved. I'm sitting in meetings every week trying to update people about this artist's progress on whatever we're doing next. So if I can't give a straight answer and I go, I don't know, they're writing songs. Like who gets excited? Who knows what that means? Is it a week? Is it six months? So for me, if I could just say like, when you're done stewing in this problem, if you want my advice, here it is talk to whoever you want to talk to about it and come back to me and let's get solutions moving. And like, let's just start banging out the rest of it. Can I tell you something that just happened to me and Finn that is interesting on this topic of just being straightforward? And maybe we can talk about this for a little bit uh, because this is a, a thing in the music industry that I wish people would just understand how to do more. Um, so we got turned down by an artist for Nail the Mix like 
a couple months ago, an artist that would have been really cool to have. Typically we don't get turned down by artists. Like I would say it's one in 20 or something. It's very rare, but every now and again, you get turned down, obviously. In this case, though, the artist was really, really cool with Nail the Mix and really loves what we do, but didn't feel it was right for the branding, their own branding. And so the leader of the band for, called- For a valid for reason. For a valid reason, exactly. But not he didn't hide behind his manager or any of that pussy stuff that people do in this industry. The leader of the band called me to tell me straight up, what his reasons were, why he was doing it. And he just wanted, he just wanted to be straightforward and not like not waste time, not mince words or anything. And like my respect for that band and that, uh, situation is, is huge. And at first when I told the producer that happened, the producer was like a little mortified that me and the artist had that conversation Hmm. or that, he was afraid that it would have ruined his nail, the mix that the artist turned me down to my face. But actually it gave me a profound respect for the situation since so few people in this game will just up and say no for, will just say, no, I don't want to. Cause it's not my thing. Yeah. If people would just say that, how much bullshit would we save? Insane hours a day. No question. Hours. <laughs> Why do you think, it's so hard in this industry. I mean, there's even a term for it. It's called the California no. I've never uh, heard that. Blasco like that. Showed me, told me that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but Blasco told That's me that like one. It's just like punting uh, it down when, the field and rescheduling and Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, right, we're right. going to do this thing. Yeah. yeah, let's figure out a time to put this project together. Hit me up whenever, yeah. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, hit me up. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about it in a few weeks. <laughs> in a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, I think in a couple months I'll be good to do yeah. this thing. It's the California now. I like that. That's a nice thing. Uh, what I think is no one likes confrontation, obviously, right? It's not an exciting thing to do for any reason. But once you do it in a sense where you're, there's honest, you know, reasoning behind it, like you're saying, and it, whether you agree with that honest reasoning or not, it's not up to you to decide. It's the person that was going to give time to give effort, to give yes. their value into the situation that just says straight up, it's not for me. What, that's it. That That's the end of it. Why would you want to beg that person to do it if it's going to be half-assed or uncomfortable, whatever? So whatever the situation may be, I think, you know, and again, I hate being the guy that's the get off my lawn generational guy, but I just think when you, when, when your life is <laughs> a computer and a phone, you don't learn the thing, right? Like you just don't, when I deal with 16 year old, 15 year old SoundCloud rappers and try to get to know them, they don't even put their face on the screen when I'm FaceTiming with them. Like they're nervous. I had a full 20 <laughs> yes. minute meeting with the kid. Yeah. You're looking I looked at, their at this popcorn ceiling the pacing. Yeah. I paced his ceiling yeah. for 15 <laughs> minutes, but that's just it. It's just an uncomfortableness. And I can't say I would have been any different at 15 to be quite honest. So I, I, I grain of salt, totally. everything. I try to make everyone comfortable to at least have the freedom to express that. But I just don't think it's a, a, a natural thing for people to want to learn how to be direct. And it's hard. It's a hard thing. I think you're totally right. And to your point, I think this is a skill that everybody should practice. I've seen uh, and worked with some people who are very good at it. Like my old boss at Creative Live, Chase, was very good at turning things down because he's a very busy, successful guy that just literally can't say yes to everything. 
but he understands the value of relationships. And he, I noticed that he put um, a lot of effort into saying no in the right way. Good point. Mm. And 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 it's it's pretty simple. It's basically the same way that this band said no is he would just thoughtfully explain in a couple sentences why he was turning it down. Just like, hey, it sounds like a really cool podcast, but unfortunately I can't say no to everything. And I'm sure you understand that I have to prioritize the ones with the bigger audiences. If you grow a little bit, you know, get back to me and maybe we can do it. Yeah. And who can be mad about that? You're like, yeah, I know my podcast isn't that big. I understand why you would say no. And if you're going to be mad about it, that's your problem. So I think that's a skill to practice is just like, articulating to the person and just be real with them, practice articulating why you were turning it down. And if you're saying, and if it's authentic, nobody reasonable is going to be bad about it. Yes. No, they'll actually respect you more. I actually see it different than a skill is I see it as a muscle that needs to be kept in shape. So my example of this is that like, yo, know, for example, like I've had far more relationships than my girlfriend, particularly ones where you fight all the time. So she's very scared of the confrontation and I have to pry it out of her. Whereas like she does one thing and I'm like, hey, we need to talk about that right the fuck now. Like I can't even get the words out fast enough to start dealing with the situation that's going wrong. And as well, so I managed two bands that were like really successful 10 years ago. And then I stopped managing bands for a long time and then I picked it up again. And what was so funny to me is my confrontation of contentious email muscle had dulled, whereas like what my record mean? production one. So like somebody emails you something like, I don't like that your artist is doing this. We had an agreement, something like that. And like, okay. you know, I don't talk, I, my bands don't like me talking about uh, them by name, but to call one of the singer of three of the bands I manage a controversial artist is the understatement of the decade. Okay. And, you know, we get a lot of things and it's so funny because when I first started doing it again, I just like, I'd stare at that email and I'm not, I'm an inbox zero everyday type of guy. And I'd leave emails in there for two weeks because I was so out of shape. Mm -hmm. And the longer you leave it, the worse it gets. <laughs> yeah. And then like 10 months later, now that I've been like managing this band now, I'm like, it comes in and it's out of my inbox literally. Fa and I don't think about it ever again after one minute. It's like, I open the email, I start typing and then by the end of the day, if somebody brought that up again, I'm like, oh, was that yesterday or last week? I don't even remember because my muscle's super in shape yeah. now. And it was really out of shape. And I think that that's the thing people have to remember. It's also why with Johnny, like saying, like with uh, talking to these artists, when people are like, should I talk to this record label? I'm like, do it as just practice. Even if you're not interested yep. in them, just start getting used to talking to people about your career and about what you're doing because it's basically like dating. You start to learn what's good and what's bad. Sure. And for anybody listening, this is not just like old man stuff. Like you got to learn how to talk to people on the phone. Yeah. Like this stuff actually will make a meaningful difference in your career because I'm sure we all know lots of people who are very talented, but we oftentimes don't work with them because it's going to be a pain in the ass. It's going to be difficult. They're slow to respond. They're flaky. They're Fuck yeah, I can think of someone right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can all think of that person. On, their other on the other hand, there's people who are maybe not the most talented, but you know it's going to be super easy to work with them and they get to the front of the line. So this is stuff that can make a real tangible difference in your career. It's not just old men yelling at a cloud. So what we've had maybe like, I'm just going to say 250 different producers on the URM podcast at this point. And without fail, because I try to get ask every one of them this, I just because I'm trying to prove this point. 
without fail, they all say that if they had the choice between hiring an assistant or an intern who say there's two people, one of them is slightly more skilled, but not that cool, not that easy to be around, but like is awesome versus someone who's 15% not as good, but is an awesome human. They'll take that awesome human hundred mm-hmm. percent of the time, every time without fail. And it just reminds me that, so, you know, I talk shit about my Berkeley education all the time, but there was one class. There was one business class. By the way, this is, this is like a guy complaining about the gas mileage <laughs> on his Ferrari. It's like, oh, like, you know, the passenger seat's really, really lumpy. Dude, Berkeley's not, uh, it's not great for actual music industry stuff. It's good. Ferrari's yeah. not as good as the Lambo. I mean, it's <laughs> okay. Talk all but... the shit you want. It's not. <laughs> it's good if you want to be a good musician, I think. But it's not, I think that if a school was actually designed to get people in the music industry, they wouldn't be able to survive because it would have to appeal to like 10 people a year or something. <laughs> There's no way you could, you, there's no way you could have a large school like that, that makes that kind of money and actually gear it towards, let me rephrase that, get them into the record industry. Yeah. What is the percentage you think that actually turns over? I don't know how many people go to those schools. Tiny. 2%. I think there's like 3000 people a year at Berkeley when I was there. So I think that, that that's correct from when I got the job offer. That's what they told me. So let's make a distinction between the record industry and the music industry. I think a lot of people end up in the music industry, but a tiny amount end up in the record industry. And the record industry is where most of them want to go. But anyways, in this music business class, it was taught by this dude who actually had worked at major labels and did have huge artists under his belt as a manager, as an A&R guy, like he had done everything. And the first thing he said, which is still true in my opinion, is uh, this is the most relationship driven industry in the world. If you don't have relationships, nothing is going to work. It doesn't, doesn't matter what. So that's what needs to be your main focus. And so when I think about how bad people can be at communication in this industry, uh, it bums me out because I find that that's the one thing that makes relationships better. That's the one thing that can really, really move the ball towards the, towards the goal line faster. And it's one thing that people are really, really bad at. So I don't think it's just old guys, uh, saying should be better communication. It actually is like the thing that you could do that could make a massive, massive difference, all other things being equal, in my opinion. That's great, yeah. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. The beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, 
Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Johnny, I have a question for you and uh, for everybody, but I would especially like your thoughts on this. There was a question for us in the uh, in the Facebook group. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's essentially like, what can artists do with with live streaming that's basically like, you know, everyone's doing these live streaming shows or live streaming, whatever. Like, what should artists do with that? I, I have a couple thoughts on that, but you would probably have some, a more informed perspective on that than I would. So I'd be curious to see what you think. It's it's such a weird thing because I felt like the gold rush was happening so quickly in the pandemic that then it chilled out and now it's being done better and bigger. If that makes sense, I think... When it first started, it was these janky setups, living rooms, garages, and whatever. And I'm not saying that in like you fucked up way. I'm saying it in like people were just rushing, you know, and just being like, I got to be first and get moving and get my talk to my fans and see what's up. Which is cool. Yeah, exactly. And it it, it kind of died out for a minute, and then it came back. I think the one that I saw most recently that seemed the most successful was the under oath ones that happened. And there was like a lot of little buzz around how great that one was and how professional it was. And we had a couple early on with like code orange because that was like right away because their CD release show was happening. And then it wasn't like the day before. So they said, fuck it. We're at the venue. Let's just rip it. And luckily the team put together these incredible transitional videos. I think for the majority, ask your fans what they want. That's it. Like that is the only thing that you need to do as a band. Ask your fans what they want. I used to manage William Beckett from Academy Is. And when he was off the road, we would do a weekly stageit.com concert. And we would have a theme every week because we knew his fan base, regardless of how big it was, the ones that were interested were really interested. So we would do we would do these like the next week is saves the day covers only the week after that is B sides from the big first record. The other one is, you know, like holiday music around December. Like we would do these things and he would make 2000 bucks a week on it. And it was like for a guy off the road, you know what I mean? It's like just asking the fans and if they start showing up and then tweaking and tweaking and tweaking to me, just announcing a live stream, doing it one time and stopping it is the wrong move. Like that's like a thing where you're going to put so much effort into one thing. I think right now it's consistency and momentum, but also being flexible and not like having an ego to where you're like, what do the fans want? Like me as a fan, I don't give a shit about any of my favorite bands doing a live stream. 
You couldn't get me to pay 10 bucks to watch my favorite band do one right now. It's just not exciting to me. Maybe I'm spoiled. I've been to enough shows, like whatever it is. I don't care either. Exactly. And, and that's not a knock at anyone. I mean, I work at a label where every one of our bands is putting together some sort of, you know, whether it's behind a paywall or not, whatever it is. But to me, you got to speak to the people that want something from you right now. And they're bored as fuck too. They're at home. They're excited. Maybe, it, maybe it's worth mm-hmm. all of it. And release limited merch lines with it. Release the vinyl variant with it. Release all of these other interesting things around these events. So I don't know if there's like a particular piece of advice outside of know your fan base well enough. And if you don't have the confidence to ask them what they want and be okay with whatever the answers are. I have noticed something, okay? Because I started the Riff Hard podcast and now starting to talk to artists every week as well. And URM podcast will talk to artists sometimes, but Riff Hard is only talking to artists. And so I've noticed that there are some of them who are basically taking this head on. Uh, You know, there's some who are very depressed or whatever, but there are those that are taking this, like I said, head on. And when you hear who they are, you wouldn't be surprised because their band always took things head on. Like for instance, one of the bands that I spoke to very early in Riff Hard Podcast, like in May, a guitar player from Suicide Silence came on. That's a band that, uh, you know, still might be just the small genre of deathcore, but for deathcore, that band is tremendously big and tremendously successful. And it was no surprise then when talking to him that that same amount of energy and ingenuity that they would bring to their marketing on tour and all that, they were applying to their live streaming situation and what they were going to try to do. And what I've noticed is the artists that are super, super proactive normally anyways are all they're doing is taking that energy that they would have put into the tour or whatever into their live streams now. And they're not just seeing it as a shitty second rate show that they're going to put out a video for. They're seeing it as like this whole production with, like you said, with the individual uh, customized merch lines with, uh, with all these extra things they're putting in, the same amount of brain power that they would for any other thing that they're doing. And I think that those are the artists that are making the best out of it, as opposed to some artists I've seen who are just like, well, we're home. Why don't we just throw some shit together? Cause we can't go on tour. Like the under oath thing you talked about, obviously a lot of brain power and thought and skill went into that. They took it very seriously, obviously. Uh, and that's kind of what I'm talking about. The, It's like they're putting the same level of firepower into what they're doing with live streaming. And that, I think, seems to be working. Right. So they're not half-assing things. And by the way, they were against it at first. They didn't want to do live oh. streams. Then over the course of months and months, they were kind of like, well, fuck it. If we did do it, let's do it right. like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Here's what I think. Sorry, go ahead. You could go first or I could contrarian quarter down, whatever you want. <laughs> why don't you tell me what, yeah, you can tell me why I'm wrong about this. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Here, here's, here's what I think. I think that a lot of musicians need to flip a little switch in their head as far as what their job is. I agree. Your job is to entertain people. And sometimes that is through playing music. Sometimes it is through other things. And so in regards to live streaming, Maybe some bands can just put up a webcam in their practice space and 
their fans love that. And if so, that's great. But I think you need to let go of the constraint that what you need to do always requires you to play music. For example, like Jesse, your boy Ronnie Radke is making like fucking $100,000 a month on Twitch. Oh my God. And very, I mean, I don't know exactly if it's that much, but he has somewhere around like 30,000 subs. So he's making a fucking killing. And I don't think he even play music, plays music at all. He like reacts to videos or plays video games or whatever. And he's entertaining them. That's his job. It's not necessarily to play music. And so I, I, think, I think that's the switch that people need to flip. Maybe, the, you know, uh, Matt Heavey from Trivium, he's also making a ton of money on Twitch. Sometimes he plays music, sometimes he plays games, like sometimes he'll do behind the scenes stuff. So to me, it's like if you are entertaining your audience and building a relationship with them and listening to what they want, to your point, Johnny, if your audience wants you to play music, that's cool. If your audience wants you to, you know, fucking do card tricks, then do card tricks. But flip that switch of like, how do we entertain our audience tonight? And I think it'll be successful. The suicide silence example, by the way, fits right with what you're saying because their uh, their like virtual tour isn't just music. It's what it's a lot of different things that a deathcore fan would like. I have zero interest in anything they did, but <laughs> what does a deathcore fan want at that point? I'm curious to hear what those extracurriculars are. I think deathcore fans want something that's funny, something that's uh, also insanely heavy and that's kind of uh socially bonding between them i think and it has some bright colors basically (laughs) some bright colors and uh fucked up designs like i kind of feel like if those four things are met deathcore fans are happy that's the suicide silence family guy demo in a nutshell yeah exactly (laughs) so whereas if opeth did this i'm sure they could just sit there and play and everyone right. would be happy mm-hmm. with it. So I think you're right, Jesse. Why are we wrong? <laughs> okay, well, actually, so this is the funny thing. I don't think any of us are wrong, but I guess my contrarian thing, because I, I actually think this is all what it is, and it's what I've advised, but I actually do like these live streams, but it's because I listen to a different type of And I should say, I know Finn listens to some of this too, but it's like I'm really into that hyper-pop stuff, and they do DJ sets, and what I look forward to is like during this is that I'm going to hear new songs I'm going to like and I can put that on for an hour while I work on a fucking spreadsheet and write down two songs that were really good and then all of a sudden I have a new favorite song. So I'm getting wrong. And that's how they're adding some value to your life is by introducing you to new music. Yep. Uh, The thing I will say, it's it's, you know, my YouTube channel is focused on going from zero to 10,000 fans to go to roundabout everything we were just talking about with the networking thing and with the relationships thing is that the thing I advise all the groups to do and like my thing on Instagram is that the biggest thing you need to be doing when you're a small group is finding the other groups who are similar to you in some way and finding your community. And what I say, the way you should start doing that bond is you invite a group that's similar to you, that's small like you, maybe from another part of the country or the world. And you guys, every Tuesday, you're just going to have 30 minutes to an hour where you go on Instagram live for both of your audiences and you get to know each other and that you do it with a different group next week and a different group. It serves so many things during this time because you're one exposing each other to each other's audience. You 
get to know people, you entertain them, and you do the thing. And that is also how you build the bonds. And that's who you're going to tour with and collaborate with in the future. But that's Great like idea. my very big thing. What do you mean by get to know each other? And how easy is that? Go on Instagram Live and be like, yo, I just listened to your new track. That sound in the chorus is really weird. Is that uh, an Earthquaker Devices fucking transmedia, whatever pedal? Like, just talk about what your audience would want to talk about. If you're music nerds, talk about the fucking G minor seven or whatever. If you're So the artist, the artist version of what URM does with our people. Yeah, like just get to know each, to other each other in it's some easy. way. Yeah, just get to know each other in some way, entertain it, and then it will also cue the fans. Like, this is a group you should know in their community. They're in my community. You like my stuff. It's just a nice cue. And like what I also say is like, do that, then like make a fucking YouTube playlist and a Spotify playlist, put that other artist in it and share that and tag them all the time. That, I mean, every group I've ever managed has been brought up by their scene and their community of other groups they came up with. And this is how you do that in the modern era. And the fact that so many of them miss this, particularly in rock, is like literally head desk for me every day. Yeah. Jesse, who who have you signed to your hyperpop label that you're gonna start? <laughs> you know, I like I think about it all the time because I'm like, <laughs> I've never had a good ear for unsigned artists, but now I listen to so many artists with like 13 plays that I'm like, this is amazing. Uh, so I'm ready for it. There's this it's one. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it, it's. I mean, it's the most the most exciting genre. Send me the ones that have good vocal melodies, please. Uh, I'll send you one that's doing really well on TikTok when we're done. There with we this. go. All right. Making magic. I have a question here from the Facebook group. This is actually from George Lever. Nice. One of the best producers in the game right now. Great guy. Dude, I'm telling you, George is going to be a big name in the next mm -hmm. few years. You're going to see that happen. He's actually I agree. on Nail the Mix this month, August. Future YouTube sensation, too. I don't have enough good things to say about him, but uh, I mean, he's a sick producer mixer but i think the way his brain is wired is why i uh, why one of the main reasons i see him advancing but uh his question and i kind of want to hear each one of your take on this but uh what are the most common mistakes that you see individuals make in the music industry when it comes to business growth that you wish you could alleviate let's just start with you finn well i think that in almost every field the biggest issue is getting in our own way, you know, as, as we've talked about a million times before, like whoever it is that said that quote, whether you say you can do it or you can't do it, it's going to be true. I, I think that that's it. And mm -hmm. in creative fields in general, I would say that like self-doubt is a particularly big obstacle, self-doubt slash the self-talk that says you can't do it because of some external factor beyond your control. And I know that that's kind of abstract and, and people are probably looking for some tactical thing like, oh, you should be using Asana to track your <laughs> daily to-dos. But I, I think all that other stuff, like that's fine. But as long as you like are putting the locus of control over your success on something outside your control, you're, you're doomed. Like you have to believe that you can do it and you have to believe that you have enough control over the factors for your success, that it's possible. And if you believe that, then you'll do whatever it takes to make it work. So I, I know that that may sound kind of abstract, but that's the biggest mistake I see is just negativity and cynicism and finger pointing in the blame game. And if you stop all that and get your head in the right place, then you'll figure out the rest. I agree. What about you, Johnny? Mine is similar to Finn's, but a slight different lane is 
I have a hundred things I could say, but if I'm going towards the top of the list, I would say entitlement is the only thing that I've seen mm. fail every <laughs> single fucking time. Ha. Huh. Is that it, Jesse? I stole it from you. That's that's no, that's that. No, no, no. no. I'm high because because it's really good. It, it, that it, that's the right. I've been looking for the word. That's the right word. That's it. Because every single person that ever comes into my life in music, when I first started and knew no one, I, I kind of summed up my entire career in a quote the other day to a buddy, and I just said, "Getting the pe- people that you believe in to believe in you, and that's the only mm. way that you will ever like." be able to kind of like, I don't want to say climb the ladder in like a lame way, but in a way to be in bigger conversations around people that have had success and have experience and have the halls of their office lined with plaques that you are enamored with the first time you see and then start doing it yourself and learning from those people and just not being entitled to be like, why, why isn't that me? Why can't I have that? Why did they get it? Why did they get that job? Like, that to Finn's point will lose every time. No one has ever gotten more successful by being poor me at all. It just is impossible. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one B would be don't be a fucking asshole. That's it. <laughs> what about you, Jesse? My big thing I'm on now is not enough research because I see over and over and over again. Like whether it's like, oh, we're going to do this idea. Well, you should have known about this thing and now it failed because you overlooked that thing or onto just who you collaborate with. Like when I say research, like the most shocking thing to me is just like, oh, well, my cousin's uncle's brother is a video director. We'll get him. It's like it takes an hour and it's really enjoyable to scroll through YouTubes and see who is making good videos and they're usually going to do a way better job. Same with producers and mixers. And, you know, I um, I know you just talked to the Spirit Box people and they uh, mm-hmm. were on another podcast that I listened to and they talked about like how much work they did to research who was going to mix their stuff. The research of who you're going to involve in your team of who gets things done is like the most easy thing. And it's also super fucking inspiring. It should be fun too. If it's not fun, you're fucking doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, like, honestly, like, even for, like, people write me all day with the YouTube. They're like, I can't believe how much you take it. I'm like, I fucking love every minute of watching new things. Like, when people message me on Facebook, like, sure, I don't want to ever get a Facebook message because it's annoying as hell. But I'm super psyched. Like, yesterday, somebody sent me this, like, insane video that I was like, oh, I'm I literally wrote a script in 30 minutes, like probably the fastest I've ever written one from seeing something somebody sent me in a message that I had an idea off of. And that's what you're supposed to be doing as an artist is you're supposed to be researching and getting inspired. And like particularly what you hear, and Johnny, I'm sure you can speak to this, is like a lot of the best artists are constantly making inspiration and mood boards and things like that. You know, I just heard um, Ali X talking about how much of that was her jumping off point. She's one of the biggest... Uh, non-label artists in the world right now. And like, I, it really is the thing is like, you need to be thinking about looking at things and figuring out what you're going to get inspired from, what you're going to launch from. Like if you're, if, if you're telling yourself like, we need to have better music videos, that's what would make us more successful. How do you actually do that? You should have an answer. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and someone's like, cool. Well, if you could work with five directors, who would they be and why? You should have that answer immediately. Agreed. Yeah. And mine is, uh, I think too many people don't properly play the long game. They short game things way too much Mm. or way too impatient. And 
are in, they're basically, they don't get themselves ready for the long haul. And because these things take a long ass time, every single career that I know of that I admire in some way, uh, has been something that has been long and hard fought and earned basically. And everything awesome that's ever happened to me took a really long time. It actually involved everything that you guys mentioned also, but it always took way longer than expected. And also relationships that are going to be fruitful take a long time to develop. They don't just get handed out, especially in this industry, because there are so many bullshitters, so many people who will waste your time that I think anyone who has something good they can bring to the table is going to be protective over that thing. And so in order for you to actually earn it and get that, it takes time. I think that that's something that I see people just not grasping too much or enough. Sure. I'm going to add something that I think kind of touches on everything we talked about. And, and this is going to sound like such an asshole thing to say. I don't mean it that way at all. But like, I really like, I encourage people to Google more. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, yeah. It sounds like such an asshole thing to say, but really a vast amount of the questions people ask me or that I see people ask you, Jesse, I know this is true of AL, probably true for you too, Johnny. Like if you spent, I don't know, three minutes Googling it, you would have an answer. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think that's not, it's important. It's not because like, Oh, I'm so important. Don't waste my time. It's more like, feel free to ask me some questions, but you should make them count. Like when you have access to somebody, make sure you're asking them a question that only they can answer that you couldn't answer on your own. I used to own, don't ask me before you Google it.com. So I could just send people there. <laughs> <laughs> Managing bands back in the day, I used to have the conversation of, if you couldn't get a hold of me, what would you do? And then they would say, well, I would have then walked up to the ticket counter to ask for a different flight. I'm like, cool. So next time, pretend (laughs) you can't get a hold of me and then do that thing. And then if you run into a brick wall there, you've got my number, right? But it's 3 a.m. You're in Japan. So like the shit, I can't help you. I'm not in Japan. I can't walk up and explain shit. So that's to your point is just spending that extra couple minutes and effort. And again, it's avoiding confrontation, all of it. It's like, it all comes to a head. We're like, please do something for me. And you're like, no, that's not how this is going to (laughs) work. So to the one that you said, Finn, about getting your head in the right space to actually believe that things are possible. I have noticed this my whole life, actually, that when it comes to believing that, good things are possible. A lot of people either relegate those to it only happens to other people or they think that it's uh, it's just this luck thing or, or they tend to swing the other way, which is like thinking that huge things are just going to happen to them. Like, boom, like it's just going to happen. Like what did you do in order to, to fix your head and get yourself to realize that uh, you were capable of doing cool things. I will tell you the specific example of this. I'll tell you exactly when it happened. And I think you were there. I think I was actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in in 2017, we went to a convention, the ClickFunnels yep. convention. ClickFunnels is a company that makes a piece of software that essentially is like 
landing page designer, more or less, kind of targeting like these like small businesses, like the kind of people that sell like flashlights on Facebook or whatever, these kind of, <laughs> you know, kind Sounds of riveting. corny. I mean, that's really what it is. I mean, that's actually the, the specific person I'm about to talk about sells flashlights on Facebook. And they make like $3 million a year doing it. <laughs> Yeah, and I I know who these like I know who these people are. They were there at the convention. These people are not bullshitting. They became millionaires selling the dumbest shit on Facebook or these kind of corny info products that a lot of us would kind of laugh at or whatever. So we went to this convention, and at the convention there was I don't know ten or fifteen people basically telling their story of how they became successful and what they did. And I noticed that these people were not smart, like. And, and I'm not saying that like to laugh at them or put them down. No, you're right. They were yeah. not smart. There's nothing special about them. Right. They're making basic math errors, like reversing signs, getting terms like churn and retention backwards and stuff. And I was like, holy shit, these people, I, I, I thought that the reason why I wasn't you know, succeeding at things or that I couldn't do things is because I didn't know enough. I was like, oh, I have to read another 10 books and then I'll know enough, then I can start. And then I realized like, I was sitting next to Joey Sturgis and I was like, we know more about this than everybody in this room combined. And the difference is between- Powerful. Yeah, and, and the difference between me and the people up on stage, like I know more than they do, but they were doing it and I wasn't. Yep. I was like, well, who's the fucking idiot now? <laughs> and that's what made me realize like- you just got to do it and you really don't have to, you know, there's, there's no like magical piece of knowledge out there that, oh, if I only find this or for mixers, like, oh, if I just have this plugin, we've all had that journey a million times, right? Oh, if I just get this plugin mm -hmm. a piece of gear, that's what's going to make my mixes to come together. You get it and you're like, oh, that didn't make any difference at all, did it? Or maybe, maybe made it 5% five, <laughs> 5 better. So that's yeah. the moment that I realized, uh, and and I, I went back to uh, Creative Live where I was still working at the time, and I told Chase about that, and he was like, and he said something that was like very simple but powerful to me. He just he looked at me and he kind of smiled. He's like, "You don't have to be smart to get rich," <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> "Wow, that's Wrong. true, isn't it?" Fuck. So that was the moment for me that just flipped the switch. Yeah, the, it was. Uh, I was there too, and. My switch was already flipped, but still, I had a very similar experience to you watching that. I was very wowed by how successful these people were and how not like what, uh, I guess, what this uh, romantic version of an entrepreneur that everybody yes. worships is. Mm, like, yeah. I think that some Stanford PhD, like these people are fucking high school dropouts. Like, you know, like when people think of like great artists, great rock stars, I think of these like eccentric geniuses who are just wild people. Or you think of the entrepreneur, you think of an Elon Musk that's like living this crazy life and wants to colonize Mars and like- Having threesomes with Grimes at Johnny Depp's house. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Wow. Stuff, that's to wow. stuff that's totally foreign to just about every other human on the planet. And so you think of success and you think about it's not reality. And then you go to something like ClickFunnels and it's like, holy yeah. shit, these dumbasses are fucking crushing it just because they followed through. Yep. It's pretty powerful. Can I explain my moment of that? Because yes, I think please. it will translate yeah. with these. I'd, I'd rather you didn't. No, <laughs> okay, no. When I was working at a record store for years and I always wanted to just like get involved and I didn't know any, I lived in suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. And when I saw my friend's band named Knockout signed to Fearless Records and Fearless had At The Drive-In and a bunch of cool shit, I was like, 
My friends just got signed. I knew they were good. I watched them develop from not being good to being good. I know everyone involved, including the small producer, which was Sean O'Keefe at the time, Hmm. all of these other people. And I was like, if I would have just done something, I could have been involved in helping them. But I was just a guy going to their show and buying a shirt every two weeks because they were my friends. So then it was like the next one I find, I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to do all Hmm. the things in front of it. And I did. And that's exactly how I started doing a record label. And then the second part, and I think it's good because it's like, if you see someone you know make it in a way, making it, whatever it is, you go, what the fuck? Like, I'm just as smart as that person, if not smarter, like you're saying. And from that point, the second part of it is when I heard the song Saturday by Fall Out Boy, where the singer goes into falsetto in the final chorus, I was like, oh, that's how you get on the radio. And it all made sense to mm. me. And then they still close their shows 18 years later with that song, every show. So when I heard it in my bedroom, a demo version of it, I was like, aha, like you just need those little minor moments to be able to go, I could do that. That's the guy I just saw piss his pants two weeks ago (laughs) and he just signed a major record. You know what I mean? Like it's when you can normalize something, that's where the light bulb comes out. I had one in 2015. I guess my switch has been flipped my whole life about being able to do this stuff. But there have been some things that still seemed crazy. And I remember in 2015, when URM was coming together, I had like big ideas for what I wanted it to do, but it was still just like a podcast and I had some creative live courses and it was no nail that makes hadn't been invented or anything. And I saw an article, I think in like Forbes or Business Insider or something with somebody who did online education, they like talked about how much he was pulling in. And I was like, not thinking, oh, he shouldn't have that or anything. I was just thinking if he has that, why don't we like, is this the person we know who had that month where he made 30 or 50 grand or whatever it was? It was like 70 or 80. You you know who I'm talking about. Um, Yeah. Nice guy. Yeah. But like, you know why I'm thinking if he has that, what are we doing? Like, yeah, there's no way, there's no world in which we shouldn't be doing way more. And so it just kind of, that flipped my switch as far as URM goes. Like from that point on, it was just like, I don't know. Like, and I had already had big thoughts, but it was seeing that just gave me some perspective, I guess. It was a similar a similar sort of thing, but I just, I just want to be clear that it was never like he shouldn't have it or fuck him for having it sure. or anything like that. Yeah, it shouldn't be jealousy. It should be inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. With this person in particular, he has been putting in the work for like, yes. what, seven or eight years yeah, now? absolutely. Consistently without ever missing a yeah. beat. So I think that's the common thread with all these is like people just putting one foot in front of the other you know, as they say, hard work beats talent and talent doesn't work hard. Yeah, he's not a genius or anything like that. Right. And there, and we can all think of lots of people who are geniuses and ended up kind of going nowhere because they didn't put in the work. Yeah, my uh, college roommates, man. <laughs> I hope you're listening. They're not mm-hmm. listening. I don't, I doubt they're listening. No, I'm saying that because <laughs> my college roommates were two of the most talented people I've ever met in my entire life. I would have put them among, you know, up there with the great talents that I've met in the industry through, you know, 
great people in bands I've toured with or have had the pleasure of working in the studio with or just know through this, like they were on that top level of talent, but they were such fuck ups that they never did anything ever. They never, their music career never went past that dorm room. They were way better than me way fucking better at everything. They could sing, they could write, they could play in any style. They fucking looked great. They had, they were like the complete package and they were smart too. They were designed to be successful in music minus one little, one key little detail, which is they didn't work for shit, had no goals and just were more interested in doing drugs and playing video games, I guess. But, uh, I've seen it where someone has all the ingredients minus the just doing it factor and goes nowhere. I'm sure you guys have too. Yeah, I, I guess the thing I'd add to it for me, what's been prevalent is the also that like, so the, I guess the backstory is we talked about this a little is that so since COVID started, I left Atlantic Lecture where I was doing podcasts and I started doing a political podcast for one of the biggest news organizations in the world. And I have realized that through my career. So for example, like when I, I met Steve Evitz, who is my favorite producer, it's like, I knew how to do drum edits and I was do everything about pro tools when, you know, there was only hundreds of pro tools in the, the world at that point. And with this, I've been studying politics as my hobby for decades. And I was then prepared when an opportunity uh, walked my way. But the other thing that I really do believe is that, what we've all also had is that we all had an education beforehand. And when I say an education, it's really just hard work, being dedicated to looking at different things like, yeah, when you were just a record producer, you were always studying other things. Finn, you've always been involved in interesting businesses and learning new things and learning different disciplines. Johnny, you've always studied music to a degree. And it's like that thing of like, Showing up and doing that work every day is what has opened every door for me and made every opportunity to do it because I'm dedicated every day to not playing the video game and doing something to better myself. Great point. Isn't that just part of your lifestyle? Oh, it's, I, I don't, you know, it's like one of those things I don't even have a choice. Like I tried to actually <laughs> stop the other week because I was so burnt out and I couldn't even do it. Yeah. I did the same that I was like, I bought a Nintendo Switch. I was like, I need to like chill out more. Good luck. I'm gonna buy a Switch and just give myself some time every night to just play a video game and be unproductive. Lasted about two days. <laughs> yep. I haven't played it since. <laughs> yep. Dude, the last time I tried that, so uh, it was in 2015 also. I was like, you know, I need to do that. So I got an Xbox. Uh, I, three days later, I took it back. It's just like, this is not gonna actually happen not gonna work yeah you can't trick yourself i think there's an important point here and actually johnny it's what exactly what you just said is i think it's important to know yourself and understand whether you are the right type of person for the thing that you want to do in other words to like do certain things to like be elon musk you have to work 18 hours a day seven days a week for you know 40 years straight and if that doesn't sound fun to you, then don't try to be Elon Musk. And you wouldn't enjoy it anyway. I mean, I've been around some of these like exceptional people, like really, really exceptional people. And, you know, you may think you want what they have, but if you actually spent a, a day or two days in their shoes, you would fucking melt. You would hate it. I would hate it. And I realized that. And so I think it's important 
to align who you actually are. Like I don't work all the time because I'm super disciplined. I work all the time because that's what I want to do. I mean, it's just like, that's what's enjoyable to me. So I don't give myself a lot of credit for that because it just comes naturally to me. Yes. And if, if it's a slog to you, then do something else. Like this just isn't, it's just not, you know, and it's not a bad thing. I'm not saying like working all the time is good or bad. It just is what it is. And you just have to, you know, understand, like, for example, like I don't enjoy, you know, working out all the time. So for me to want to be a, a, a you know, bodybuilder uh, would probably not be a smart idea because I don't like lifting weights all the time. And the people who are into that stuff, they like it. They want to be in the gym yeah. four hours a day, you know? So you just, I, I think it's really important to know yourself and put yourself in a position where your strengths are aligned with your goal. And for example, like I'm, I'm not a very chill person. And so <laughs> I- <laughs> You don't say. <laughs> yeah. Never noticed. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not like- an asshole or somebody. I'm just, this is who I am. And so I struggle in situations like a lot of, like I'm not a very good corporate employee because I get really antsy and irritated at sort of the slow pace that's required at a, a, inside a corporation. So somebody who, so I'm a bad fit for that. I would be unsuccessful there. It's not that I'm stupid. I'm just, my personality is not suited for that. On the other hand, somebody who is more chill and maybe isn't wired for like working constantly like I am, is, is a better person for that job because they're okay with moving slow and I'm not. So knowing yourself and not lying to yourself about who you are and where you fit, I think is an important thing for everyone to understand. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know, to your point and also to what Jesse said about the research and to what Johnny said about the entitlement, I actually do think that they all go together. But yeah. the thing with the research of the just Googling things isn't something, for instance, that I've had to try to do, like, I don't try to do that stuff for any reason other than something comes up. I want to know more about it. The end. What's quicker than something I can do on my own? Why that entitlement thing about, let me just ask Johnny to fix it for me. Why would I do that when that's going to take way longer for me than something that can just give me the answer right here, right now, boom, I can find out about it. That's not something I have to try to do. It's, it just makes logical sense that if there's a problem I need solved, there's something I want to find out about, why not take the quickest path to the information, which is something I can control. So that's just something I've naturally always done. And so what you're saying, Jesse, that research thing, at least in my case, that shit just comes naturally. I'm sure it kind of does with you too. Yeah. All my life. All right. So what are some things that you guys have developed that are unnatural to you, but that have made a big deal? And is there anything? Most recently reading because I am the slowest fucking reader in the world. And I have to my wife's uh, she fucking hates it. I have probably 25 <laughs> books in this bedroom alone that I have not read yet that I am just like, I see it, I buy it. And then I'm like, I'm a 10 page a day guy. Like I'm just slow. And that's when I go further, it's because I'm looking at the quantity over quality of just accomplishing something and not absorbing it. So I have learned to pace myself and just do 10, put it down. But if I do it consistently, I get through a book in two and a half weeks. You know what I mean? So it's like, you're cool. Like that's, so I've found my pace there. So for me, it's not natural for me to be a reader. I've taken all of the speed reading suggestive tips and none of it clicks with my brain. So to your point of finding the information for yourself, 
we all absorb it so differently to where like, if you asked me for help to go do something for you, you might not love the way that I reiterate those things back to you anyway. So for me, I love the quiet version of me approaching it, whether it be through a book or a 20 minute YouTube video. Thank you, Finn. Or just seeing something else get broken down a way that I go, huh, I never thought about that. You know? So that's the thing. If it's not natural, try all of the different ways like and, and just kind of like you know to me reading chills me out too so i i just like vibe with it and i soak in the information and if her book sucks i stop reading it like i think that's a hard mm. thing too that that's a good people one forget you know what i mean and it's it, it, and people when you buy a book you think i have to i have to read it i have to finish it but yeah. if i'm 100 pages into a 300 page book and i'm like this book fucking sucks i'm not excited <laughs> to pick it up i don't want to read it it doesn't excite me. I'm not absorbing anything of quality. That's been a, a muscle that I've had to flex and I've had to like learn, well, fuck it. Just go donate this book. It's doing nothing for you. So that's my short answer is reading. Two hour rule was a great one. Somebody who reads way more books than me uh, taught me years ago. That is if you're not engaged after two hours, then it literally do not have guilt. Get it the fuck out of your life. Great. There's a million great books out there. You don't, you're never going to have time to read all the great books that you should read. And when you find one that you do love, you go, oh, that's what it's supposed to be. That's exciting. Yeah. I couldn't put Bobby Hundreds has a book that he put out, uh, what, two years ago or something. I was literally ending meetings early to get another 20 pages in. And I don't do mm. that. I've never done that. Great book. What made you want to pick that up? If that's not a natural thing that you enjoy, what? What brought that on? I've always been enamored with the hundreds as a brand and a community and a culture. And it's something, it's very odd. I thought about it as I finished the book that I've never actually purchased anything from them in the 15 yeah, years I've enjoyed neither. the brand, but I'm enamored. I love the hundreds. I would never wear it. Exactly. Mm. But there's something about the culture and the positivity and the little it. bit of like politicalness to him and just always saying the right things, even during the riots of, in March and April, his shop got burned to the ground. And he goes, good, if that's what it takes to make change in this world, I'll take it. Like a guy with Damn. that mentality, I think can go so far in the world and teach us all really important lessons. So the book is incredible. It's called, This Is Not a T-Shirt. Is that it, Finn? Oh, that guy. Yep. Okay. I got a copy of it right over here. Yeah, no, I, I have it on Amazon because I, I I bought it right right now. So fucking great book. So that that to me, like when a great book strikes you, uh, you know, it's a no, it, it, it's it's a guilty pleasure to admit. But the first book that I actually couldn't put down was The Dirt, and like oh just yeah, that's I a was, great book. Because I tried every, you know, this Led Zeppelin story, and you're like, yeah, okay, you oh, know, that's I'm not. That's there. a terrible book, right? So you just don't. And then I read The Dirt, and I remember reading it on a flight, and I was like. I wanted to finish. I wanted to like get to my hotel wherever I was going and keep reading, which is fucking crazy. So when you find your thing, like a little bit of your drug or your high from it, you're like, wow. So the latest one is Bobby Hundreds' book, though. Go read it if you haven't. I just bought it. Yep. Great. Same. What about you, Jesse? What's something that's uh, not been natural for you? This YouTube channel that I've started was while. It sounds weird to some people, but like, I definitely have, have some part of me that does not like being the source of the attention. I always liked the idea of being the record producer. I, when I was in bands, I actually wanted to perform from the sound booth 
because I didn't want to be in front of everybody. And did you ever do that, by the way? I did it out of necessity at some okay. uh, show at, at Bard College. The sound was so bad that I just moved my keyboard stand to the sound booth. <laughs> Awesome. Sorry to cut you off. It was pretty interesting to throw that out. It it was just one of those things that, like, I just, you know, at the end of the day, like, I'm a pretty confident person, but I don't love – It's this is the right way to say it. I am so introverted that it is very draining to me, and I'm already drained enough all the time from overworking to want to put myself out. But the YouTube channel, which was largely inspired by seeing Finn do it, I was like, I need to do this exercise. I need to get over this. I need to push through this. I need to recognize that just like I was talking about before with a lot of things is that it's a muscle and I have to exercise this muscle and my life will be a lot better if I exercise this muscle. And it's honestly been the best thing I've done with my life in a long time is that I'm even in, you know, I should say like the biggest source of insecurity for me is that now that I work at a news organization with like some of the top reporters in the world, like I'm in a Slack chat with them all day discussing the news and I'm really insecure. Even though people tell me like, you know so much about politics. I'm like, well, these people are the fucking experts and I'm very scared. And this channel gives me a lot more confidence because you see the feedback, you see the things. And I, you know, I should say, I put out a video this week where like, 25% 25% of the comments told me I'm the stupidest person they've ever seen. And, but I know. Which is good because that means you did something people care about. Working. Yes, yes, exactly. I know, I know, I know that, I know that I have experience. I know what that comes from, but having that exercise of putting yourself out, it's been really, really difficult, but I see the rewards in everything that like, I'm more confident in every single thing that I do because I dare to push myself out there and do something that's really uncomfortable for me. Love that. Man, doing things outside of your comfort zone are uh, the best. What about you, Finn? What's something you adopted that's not natural to you that's a good thing? I would say risk-taking. You know, I'm naturally a very risk-averse person, uh, and I, I realize that I mostly operate based on, like, fear of being poor is, like, my biggest motivator. Uh, not that I have some horrible sob story, but you know, I grew up on welfare with a single mom and all that stuff. And it was not super fun. And, uh, you know, everybody else I grew up around was like that too. And it's just like, it was not fun. And I realized that I've operated a lot of my life just out of uh, fear of living like that again, which has made me, which has led me to be more risk averse than I probably need to be because as we were talking about before, it's like, I know that I can do this stuff. And it just took me a long time to believe that. And I've been taking more risks in the past couple years. You know, I'm really happy that I have. There's never been a time where I regretted it. You know, some of those things worked out and some of them didn't, um, but I've never regretted it. And any time in my life, I, looking back on it, there's never been a time where I was like, man, I wish I would have la- waited longer to do this or whatever. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I'm sure we could think of some examples of that, but it's like, a hundred to one, the conversation we have with ourselves is why did I wait so long to do this or that? Yep. yep. Why, you know, why didn't I break up with this person? Why didn't I move? Why didn't I quit that job? It's always like, why didn't I do that sooner? So I've just been pushing myself to take more risks. And uh, I'm really happy that I have been because, you know, it's it's really true that, you know, it's, it's risk and reward. If you don't take any chances, you're not going to get 
those like outsized opportunities that you want either. So that's hard for me to do because I'm naturally like a fearful risk averse person, but it's felt good to push myself outside that comfort zone. Another thing I wanted to mention um, in regards to YouTube and what we talked about earlier, as far as like, you know, letting go of that desire or, or fear of failure and need to like hide behind perfectionism and not putting the thing out until it's perfect I would guess you feel the same way, Jesse, but I put out a, a YouTube video every week. I put out a podcast every week and I usually put out a second channel video every week. 100% of the time, every single time I'm about to put one of those things out, I think it's terrible and <laughs> everyone's going to hate it and it's going to be awful every single time. And I just do it anyway. And the reaction is never as bad as I'm afraid it's going to be. Even when something is a quote unquote failure. That just means that less like people are just indifferent. Mm -hmm. Like if you think that there's going to be this reaction or there's this big backlash and everybody hates it, like that's very unlikely to happen. You know, if you're a, if you're already a big creator that's in the public eye and you have a big audience, okay, that's another conversation to be had. Like, you know, if you're uh, if you're Fallout Boy and you want to put out your you know, dubstep record, that's maybe another conversation to be had because you have a big audience that does have expectations. But most of us are not in that position. And I think the best thing you can do is just put shit out. I mean, Jesse, what's you You put out what? A couple dozen videos now? I have put out 80-something videos Holy shit. since okay. December. Yeah, uh, so I put a lot. Two, and, two every week. And yeah, it, it, you know, it's a funny thing too is, I mean, I arguably have worked on more if you think of this way, I've probably worked on 2,000 records now. And it's so funny because these videos are a new expression for me. So I'm so precious and I go back over and over and over things. But like with records, I'm like, oh, well, you know, this takes this many hours. Okay, we've reached that point. I'm probably done unless I'm really obsessive over the record of producing it. Then I'm going to go way further. But yeah, the, the funny thing is, is your expectations of everything of what could possibly happen are totally irrational. And I, you know, the story I always tell is when I put out my first book, the morning it came out, I had the third panic attack of my life and like literally had nine one ready to dial the last one <laughs> and had to walk to the white castle across from my studio <laughs> in case I had a heart attack because I was freaking out so bad. We need to have a conversation where White Castle is the place that you go to when there's a potential health emergency, but we can do that later. Listen, it was the closest. Yeah, there's the only place that's worse. close by. Just saying. The only place close by. And I, I will also say, I had a studio there for 13 years and I never ate there once. What a time to start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember how bad it was the last time I had had it. So uh, the point being, though, 15 minutes later, I got like a review from the main place. I was waiting for the review saying it was the best book to buy on the music business. And I'm like, wow, you're a fucking idiot. But it's not <laughs> that I'm actually an idiot. It's that we work ourselves up into panics about things when most likely the result is going to be indifference or uh, when you release something that's not good. You're exactly right that it's, it's just people just go, mm, okay, another piece of shitty content. I see that yep. every day three times. Also, you as a creator, you have no idea what's going to be popular and what's not. That's totally like, true. You have no clue. The song or video that you, you know, that you're like, oh man, this is the best fucking thing I've ever done. You put it out and people are like, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then you put out another one and was like, oh my God, this is great. And you're like, really? You like that one? You have no idea. So, you know, you just got to let go of your expectations, get out of your own head and just keep making shit and getting better every time. And that's the only, 
that's the only possible path, I think. Johnny, I'm curious, since you work with people who are so highly elevated, I mean, you're basically at the peak of delivery that you can reach. What is the thing with that? Like, like how bad are the nerves and how bad is the thing? Like, do you feel like you can predict pretty well at this point what's going to do well? Or do you th think you've gotten better at that? Like my personal nerves or the band's nerves as they're releasing music? Probably both is interesting, but I'd be curious yours. I know what to expect. I have, I have a better parameter on what window to expect something to fall within. So when I'm putting out a new, call it this, this kid, Jaden, that Finn and I have talked about a few times, when I'm putting that out, there's no doubt in my mind that it's going to be successful. Like at this point, we've just proven the path and the method and what it is and enough surrounding it and how it sounds is this, but better, right? Like every time we stack, it just, it's working. It's things that I don't want to say, there's nothing I do that's like wildly controversial, but there's definitely things that are like left of center for a major label to where when I'm going in with something like that and getting, you know, I'm ner I'm nervous for the bands. I'm never nervous for me. What's the worst that could happen to me? I get fired. Who gives a shit? Like, it's like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not my art. I'm the guy helping do things. So I'm more nervous for a band that puts their career on the line to do something time after time. So I almost take on some of their burden it, what, or what I assume their burden would be. And I also know their nervousness at times when we're like, should we be trying this? Should it? And it's like, what we keep saying is like, we won't know until we do, right? Or if we've seen someone else do something similar and go, don't do that. Don't do that anymore. Like, let's come over here, you know? So I think it's just, again, to Finn, your point of being risk adverse. I, I love that for certain things. And then there's certain things I'm like, who cares? Try everything. And like, if it doesn't work, you keep moving or you learn from it and do it better. Or yeah, I, I, I wake, I mean, every Thursday at 9 PM, I'm, I'm scouring, um, you know, Spotify for what do we get? What do people think? Search Twitter when it comes out in Australia, because you get feedback 10 hours early. Like I'm absolutely that, that that's just my obsession with like, wanting to deliver good news to the people I promised good things to more than it is. I'm never worried like, oh, someone's going to hate this and our careers are both over. Like that to me is like, I'm well beyond that brain power. I just won't allow myself to go there anymore. I have been there. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a combination of all things, but to me, I just... It's good to leave that behind. It's hard to, it's absolutely hard to. And when I was putting out records early on and it'd be crickets. I thought it was like, I fucked the entire world apart. And, and I don't know what I'm doing. You're an idiot. I can't believe your boss isn't firing you tonight, like this evening. You know what I mean? Like I just would go into a hole of that. Now I'm like, shit, that one didn't work. Why didn't it work? Let's talk about it. Let's talk to the manager. Let's talk to the artist. Let's talk to the head of radio. Let's talk to the head of DSPs and like really bring our heads together and be like, this is what happened. We didn't have enough setup time you know, so-and-so put out two tracks just like it a week earlier. So they kind of got flooded here, whatever it is, like you learn from it. You don't go, Oh man, I suck at what I do. And even if I did suck and I, I was the issue with the, with that release, particularly, I take that. And I'm like, my bad, here's what we should do next time to avoid that. And I didn't think of it. I didn't think it through yet. You know, uh, that whole feeling of if this gets fucked up, it's all over. I used to have that a lot, but, uh, I don't, I don't get that anymore now, like at all. Uh, 
you know, sometimes, for instance, we'll have a bad, not bad, we'll have a less good month on Nail the Mix or something, and uh, no panic ever. Whereas I think at the beginning, I might have panicked. And definitely back in the band days or studio days, I would have those kinds of feelings all the time. Like, if we don't get this tour it's over. Yeah. By the way, this is all another argument for increasing the velocity of putting out your music or whatever it is that you do. If you only put out one album every two or three years, that's a big swing at the bat. You know, like if I put out a video this week that doesn't do that well, it's like, well, that kind of bums me out, but it's okay because next week I'll have another one. More chances to win. That's part of why I don't get that feeling on Nail the Mix yeah. is because every single month we have another at bat. So even if there's a month, there's always going to be a month that doesn't do that great, but there's always next month. It's only 30 days away. Yep. Yeah. Kind of to what Jesse and Finn were saying. One of the most profound things I ever learned was on my first time touring in a bus, I happened to be sharing it with Unearth, just me and Unearth. My, the rest of my band was another one. And they had, this was like in 2007, they had like this whiteboard up with the rules for the tour, like rules one through 10. Most of them were pretty funny, but rule number one was nobody cares. And uh, that just stuck with me. I think nobody cares is uh, is just a good, it's a good thing to remember when you're putting stuff out. I'll just say- the, You're not Kanye. People are not watching right. your every move. Correct. Nobody cares. I, and I, even I, Kanye. I'd, I'd, I'd argue no one's watching Kanye anymore. <laughs> Well, <laughs> even Kanye, like you said earlier, Johnny, if he does something weird this week, let's go. It's gone next week. Yeah, yep. exactly. I guess the my one thing that's not natural that I've developed is a exercise habit, which uh, mm. is fuck yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> is it, but it's got to be at least somewhat natural now. Like it would feel weird for you to go back to doing no physical exercise, right? Well, okay, so. Right now, if the bitch voice comes up, like, don't got to do it. I just do it anyways. And um, now it's just natural to work it into the schedule always. Like, it doesn't, I don't have to try to do that. Like, I just naturally work. I mean, maybe that's what it means for it to be natural, I guess. Like, it's not an option to do nothing anymore. Correct. If I don't exercise, there's a good reason as in like, I am so worn down that I'm going to hurt myself. So I guess maybe it has become more natural, but there's still always that God fuck voice. I don't want to fucking do this voice. Whereas I think some people don't have that. I think some people, they've just done it their whole lives or something. So developing that as a habit did not come naturally. And, uh, it was a great, Great thing. Great habit. Yeah, holy shit. Suggestive for everyone. Anyways, I want to thank you guys for coming on. I think this is a good place to end the episode. It's been a pleasure as always talking to you guys. You as well. Thanks for organizing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I learned a lot of ton things. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for doing it, guys. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio, And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.